You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. the 90th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we looked at some background to Ulysses S. Grant's campaign to capture Forts Henry and Donelson. Grant planned to take Fort Henry on the Tennessee River first in a joint operation with Andrew Foote's naval forces. We ended the last episode with Major General Henry Halleck, Grant and Foote's superior, giving them the go-ahead to attack Fort Henry. As we've mentioned before, the Confederates enjoyed unity of command in the Western Theater under General Albert Sidney Johnston, while Union forces in the West were divided between the Department of Missouri under Halleck and the Department of the Ohio, commanded by Brigadier General Don Carlos Buell. Halleck and Buell took command of their respective departments at about the same time, and both new commanders quickly realized that it would be more efficient for the Union's war effort in the West to be combined under one officer, and both realized that if their departments were merged, the new commander would probably be one of them. That set up a natural rivalry between Halleck and Buell, with neither man particularly anxious to cooperate in some operation that might work to the advantage of his rival. At his headquarters in Louisville, Buell had been under pressure from President Lincoln to push federal troops into East Tennessee to support the many Union sympathizers in that region who were being suppressed by the Confederate government. But Buell's preferred line of advance was down the Louisville and Nashville Railroad to Bowling Green, and then into Tennessee and on to Nashville. Buell continued to plan for such a move on the Tennessee state capitol, but to appease the president, he finally agreed to send a force led by Brigadier General George Thomas against the Confederates covering the Cumberland Gap. The result was Thomas's victory at Mill Springs on January 19, 1862. Arriving in St. Louis, Halleck took over a department that was in administrative chaos, and then, along with his new command, he inherited a small squadron of timber-clad gunboats, as well as a project to construct a fleet of ironclads. Halleck also inherited a subordinate district commander, a scruffy brigadier named Ulysses S. Grant, in whom Halleck had little confidence. Even as he used his considerable administrative skills to clean up the mess left by John C. Fremont, Halleck began to consider what he might do to give him an edge over Buell in the Army's internal political battles something that would show that he, Halleck, deserved to be put in sole charge of the Union's war effort in the Western Theater. Halleck's eyes turned toward the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers, which were like arrows aimed straight at the Confederate defensive line that was stretched across southern Kentucky. The Cumberland River was the dividing line between Halleck's Department of Missouri and Buell's Department of the Ohio, 
but the Tennessee River, which lay in Halleck's area of responsibility, offered the potential for Halleck to score a significant success. The Tennessee was guarded by Fort Henry, just below the Kentucky line, but if Henry were overcome, then the river could be used by Union forces to penetrate the Confederate heartland all the way into northern Alabama. Seizing control of the Tennessee River would go a long way toward completely unraveling the Confederate defensive line by driving a wedge between the Confederate positions at Columbus and Bowling Green. As we mentioned last week, the restless and aggressive Grant had also realized that seizing control of the Tennessee would deal the rebels a considerable setback, so he went to department headquarters in St. Louis on January 23rd to see Halleck and make his case for a combined Army-Navy assault on Fort Henry. But Halleck, who had already decided beforehand that he disliked Grant, was also just getting over about with measles, so he was irritable and in no mood to be lectured to by Grant about the merits of an operation that he, Halleck, had already been considering for weeks. Grant had barely opened his map case and started his presentation before Halleck abruptly cut him off and ended the meeting, telling Grant that planning strategy was the purview of the general commanding the department and that when he needed Grant's advice on such matters, he would let him know. In his memoirs, Grant said, quote, I returned to Cairo very much crestfallen, end quote. But despite his disappointing interview with Halleck, Grant knew he was right, that a move on Fort Henry was the obvious axis of advance into Tennessee. So less than a week later, he wired Halleck, saying, quote, With permission, I will take Fort Henry on the Tennessee and establish and hold a large camp there. End quote. At the same time, Flag Officer Andrew Hull Foote, the naval officer commanding the Federal's Brownwater Navy in the West, also wired Halleck, adding his voice to Grant's and requesting permission for a combined Army-Navy attack on Fort Henry. Foote said, quote, General Grant and myself are of the opinion that Fort Henry on the Tennessee River can be carried with four ironclad gunboats and troops and be permanently occupied. Have we your authority to move for that purpose when ready? End quote. In response, Halleck, on January 30th, sent Grant the following message, quote, Make your preparations to take and hold Fort Henry. I will send you written instructions by mail, end quote. Halleck's about-face was apparently influenced by two things. The first was George Thomas's recent victory at Mill Springs. While good for the Union war effort, a victory by one of Buell's subordinates was bad news for Halleck and his ongoing personal campaign to be made the sole federal commander in the war's Western theater. Halleck saw any success in Buell's department as a setback for his own agenda, so after Mill Springs, Halleck felt pressed to have a victory of his own, and soon. The second thing that factored into Halleck's change of mind was found in those written instructions that Halleck sent to Grant. In those instructions, Halleck explained, quote, A telegram from Washington says that Beauregard left Manassas four days ago with 15 regiments for the line of Columbus and Bowling Green. It is therefore of the greatest importance that we cut that line before he arrives, end quote. As we said last week, that piece of military intelligence, which came from General-in-Chief George McClellan, was only half right. P.G.T. Beauregard, who had been feuding with Confederate President Jefferson Davis, was being sent west, but he was not bringing any reinforcements with him. 
But Halleck, not knowing the news from Washington was only half correct, accepted the intelligence at face value, and the thought that Beauregard would soon be arriving with all those regiments was apparently the clincher as far as Halleck was concerned, and so he gave Grant and Foote the green light to execute their plan and attack Fort Henry. Grant had 15,000 men he wanted to use in the attack on Fort Henry, but there were only enough steamboats available to transport about half that number, so the boats would have to make two trips to shuttle the Federal troops to the vicinity of the Rebel Fort. The first lift would be made up of Brigadier General John A. McClernand's division, which was formed from soldiers at Cairo. McClernand was a political general from Illinois. Although a Democrat, he supported the Union's war against the Confederacy, and he resigned from Congress to go back to Illinois and recruit. Abraham Lincoln recognized the value of McClernand's influence, especially in southern Illinois, and the president appointed him a brigadier general of volunteers in August 1861. He was described by one observer as having, quote, a thirst for military renown and an extra high opinion of himself, end quote. At the Battle of Belmont in November 1861, McClernand had capably commanded a brigade of three Illinois regiments in Grant's force. After the transports steamed up the Tennessee and put McClernand's men ashore near Fort Henry, the empty boats would then return downriver to Paducah to pick up Brigadier General Charles F. Smith's division. Smith had graduated from West Point in 1825 and served in garrison duty in a number of posts before returning to the military academy as an instructor and the commandant of cadets. A captain at the start of the Mexican-American War, Smith served with, with distinction under both Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott, and he emerged from the war a brevet colonel. Following the war, Smith served on the frontier, rising to the full rank of lieutenant colonel in 1855. Smith was appointed a brigadier general of volunteers in August 1861, and eventually found himself serving under Grant, who had been a cadet at West Point when Smith was commandant of cadets there. Grant was still somewhat in awe of the gruff old regular army officer and felt uncomfortable being senior to his old West Point mentor, but Smith was a consummate professional and soon put Grant at ease. The flotilla of federal gunboats accompanying the expedition would consist of four ironclads, the Cincinnati, Carondelet, St. Louis, and Essex, and also the three timberclads, Conestoga, Lexington, and Tyler. The gunboats were commanded by Foote, and he made the Cincinnati his flagship. Andrew Hull Foote was born in New Haven, Connecticut, in 1806. He briefly attended West Point in 1822, but resigned to accept an appointment as an acting midshipman in the U.S. Navy. In his book, The Battle of Fort Donelson, James R. Knight writes that, quote, Foote was a sailor's sailor. He joined the U.S. Navy at age 16 and spent the next 39 years at sea in the Atlantic, Pacific, Mediterranean, and Caribbean. He was a firm believer in the temperance movement and insisted on it in all his commands. Foote's experiences commanding the USS Perry off the African coast, interdicting the slave trade, led to his support of the abolitionist cause. Foote was a fighter as well as a religious man, a common combination found in many of the prominent senior officers on both sides. 
Foote was just as at home leading a shore party with sword in hand as he was leading Sunday services on the deck of his ship. It was said that he was equally adept at preaching, fighting, or praying, whatever the situation called for. End quote. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Foote commanded the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and in August 1861, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells sent him west to command the Union's Brownwater Navy, replacing Captain John Rogers. Since federal success on the western waterways would depend, to a large degree, on cooperation between naval and land forces, it's fortunate that Flag Officer Foote got along well with his Army counterpart, Brigadier General Grant. Once they received Halleck's permission to proceed with the attack on Fort Henry, Grant, with his infantry, cavalry, and artillery, and Foote, with his gunboats and transports, got things moving quickly. Halleck's wire giving them the green light arrived on Thursday, January 30th, and then Halleck's more detailed instructions may have arrived as late as February 1st. But in any event, by Sunday, February 2nd, McClernand's division was loading onto transports at Cairo. Grant and Foote's rush to get the expedition underway could be attributed to the fact that they were both aggressive officers who were eager to strike at the enemy, but their haste was actually due to the knowledge that Halleck might change his mind at any time and put a stop to the operation. At about 4.30 in the morning on Tuesday, February 4th, the transports begin landing McClernand's division along the east bank of the Tennessee River, downstream from Fort Henry. McClernand had cautiously chosen a spot eight miles below the rebel fort, but when Grant arrived on the scene a bit later, he wanted the men move closer. Since roads in the area were few and poor, the closer the soldiers were landed to the fort, the less marching they would have to do through the wilderness to close on the fort and attack it. Grant promptly boarded the Essex and asked its commander, William Porter, to steam upriver and draw some fire from Fort Henry so that he, Grant, could judge how close the transports might be able to get before landing the troops. Porter was game, so the Essex went up and fired a few rounds at Henry, but there was no reply from the rebels. But as the gunboat put about to return downstream, the Confederates opened up on her with a 10-inch Columbiad and a 24-pound rifled piece. At a range of over 4,000 yards, the first shot missed the Essex, but the second round barely missed Grant and Porter, who were standing on the stern deck, before tearing through the captain's cabin and exiting out the other side of the boat. With the Confederate gunners having scored a hit at two and a half miles, Grant had seen enough, and he ordered that McClernand's troops be moved to a landing site about three miles north of the fort. That accomplished, Grant late that afternoon boarded one of the empty transports that was going back to Paducah to pick up Smith's division. At Fort Henry on February 4th, Colonel Adolphus Hyman, Brigadier General Lloyd Tillman's second-in-command, watched the enemy activity north of the fort with growing trepidation. Tillman himself was 12 miles away over at Fort Donelson, so Hyman sent a messenger there to let his superior officer know that the Yankees were landing in force and an attack on Fort Henry was imminent. Tillman left Fort Donelson when he received Hyman's message, and he reached Fort Henry about 11.30 p.m. on the night of the 4th. First thing the next morning, Wednesday the 5th, Tillman ordered the two regiments that were across the Tennessee at Fort Hyman to evacuate the west side of the river and return to Fort Henry to bolster its defenses. 
Fort Hyman had no heavy guns that could threaten the Yankee gunboats, and to leave the Confederate infantrymen in the place would simply doom them to being isolated on the far side of the river and captured. Although the higher ground on the west bank dominated Fort Henry, Tillman was hoping that the muddy ground and rough terrain would prevent the Federals from emplacing their own heavy artillery and threatening Henry while the battle was going on. Once Fort Hyman was evacuated, Tillman had about 2,600 men at Henry, but many of them were raw troops, armed with civilian weapons, such as squirrel guns and shotguns, and even Tillman's best unit, the 10th Tennessee, was armed with old smoothbore flintlocks from the War of 1812. Late in the afternoon on the 5th, the Federal transports returned with Smith's troops. Smith's two brigades were put ashore on the west side of the Tennessee, so that they would be in position to advance on that side of the river and attack Fort Hyman. Grant didn't realize that the Confederates who had been stationed at Fort Hyman had already evacuated the place and were now at Fort Henry. Right. Grant had the transports put troops ashore on both sides of the river so that on the morning of the 6th, his men would advance on Forts Henry and Hyman by land, while at the same time, Foote's gunboats steamed upriver to engage the rebel forts. One of the Confederates at Fort Henry watching all of this activity just downriver was Captain Jesse Taylor. He was the nephew of a Tennessee congressman and a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. At the start of the Civil War, Taylor had cast his lot with the Confederacy, and he now commanded the artillery at Fort Henry. He later recalled, quote, On the 4th of February, the Federal fleet of gunboats, followed by countless transports, appeared below the fort. Far as I could see, the course of the river could be traced by the dense volumes of smoke issuing from the flotilla, indicating the long-threatened attempt to break our lines was to be made in earnest. The gunboats took up a position about three miles below and opened a brisk fire, shelling the woods on the east bank of the river, thus covering the debarkation of their army. The 5th was a day of uncommon animation on the hitherto quiet waters of the Tennessee, all day long, the flood tide of arriving and the ebb of returning transports continued ceaselessly. End quote. There had been quite a bit of rain all winter long, and as another great rainstorm pounded the region, the Tennessee was at flood stage as the Yankees approached Fort Henry. The swiftly flowing water caused problems for the Federal flotilla as trees and even portions of buildings came floating down the rushing river, and dangerous snags lay hidden just below the surface of the muddy water. Sailors with poles had to be stationed on the bows of the transports to push the debris away from the boats. The ironclad Carondelet became entangled in a huge mass of driftwood and was dragged over a half-mile downstream, even though she had both anchors out and was operating at full steam. The floodwaters also uncovered another threat to the Federal gunboats and transports, Confederate torpedoes. But these weren't actually what we think of today when we hear the word torpedo. You see, back in the olden days, torpedoes were really mines that were positioned in rivers and harbors as a defense against Union warships. At Fort Henry, the Confederates had planted mines in the Tennessee, and they had come unmoored in the floodwaters and started to float downriver toward the Federal flotilla. These particular mines were cylinders about five feet long, designed with iron grapples to attach to a ship's hull and explode 70 pounds of black powder by means of a percussion fuse. In his book, Forts Henry and Donelson, The Key to the Confederate Heartland, 
Benjamin Cooling relates an incident that took place aboard the Cincinnati on the evening of the 5th. He writes, quote, Foote, Grant, C.F. Smith, and McClernand all stood watching as Phelps and the Conestoga deposited one of the Confederate torpedoes on the flagship's fantail. Curious about the device, the four senior Federal leaders all walked over for a closer look. As a naval armorer unscrewed a cap at one end, the weapon emitted a loud whistling noise as gas escaped. McClernand and Smith immediately threw themselves to the deck, but Foote and Grant sprang for the ladder leading back to the gun deck. Sheepishly, for all the observing Jack Tars were now laughing at the spectacle, Foote asked Grant, General, why this haste? The usually unruffled Grant replied, That the Navy may not get ahead of us. Everybody understood the barb, for it had been Foote who had loudly proclaimed to his army comrades earlier, I shall take Fort Henry before you will get there with your forces. The morrow would decide just who would win this Confederate prize. End quote. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. It rained all night, and by the morning of Thursday, February 6th, Tillman suspected that his greatest enemy wasn't the Yankee gunboats or infantry. Tillman feared his greatest enemy was the Tennessee River itself. Fort Henry had been situated at a less-than-ideal location along the river, and now, just to prove what a poor spot it was, the floodwaters of the Tennessee were rising at an alarming rate and threatening to spill over low bulwarks and inundate the interior of the fort. By the morning of the 6th, the parade ground was already flooded and the flagpole stood in two feet of water, and Tillman was wondering which would defeat Fort Henry first, the Yankees or the river. 
With the river rising so swiftly, Tillman clearly saw the futility of attempting to defend Fort Henry against a determined attack by the Yankee army and gunboats. So, after consulting with his senior officers, he had decided to evacuate Henry and fall back to Fort Donelson. But he knew there was danger in withdrawing his men over the muddy, wretched roads between the forts if the Yankees closely pursued them, so Tillman decided to buy some time by having the Confederate gunners remain at their pieces in Fort Henry as long as possible to cover the infantry's retreat. Grant had set 11 a.m. on Thursday morning as the time to start the Federal attack, and his plan was simple. While Foote's gunboats steamed up the Tennessee and engaged the enemy, the Army would pace them, advancing up both banks of the river. McClernand's men on the east bank would invest Fort Henry, while Smith's force on the west bank would come up on the rear of Fort Hyman. None of the Yankees realized that yet that except for some cavalry, the Confederates had abandoned the west bank of the river. But with the Federal infantry having to ford rain-swollen streams and slog through a muddy wilderness, Foote's gunboats, even bucking the current, soon pulled ahead of Grant's ground forces. 18-year-old Corporal Wilbur F. Crummer, serving in the 45th Illinois, was in one of McClernand's brigades advancing on Fort Henry. Crummer later wrote, quote, The next morning we took up our line of march toward Fort Henry. The rain had fallen the night before, making the roads very muddy. Many times we had to stop, stack arms, throw off knapsacks, and put our shoulders to the wheels of the artillery and help them out of the mud holes. We came to several streams not bridged, but we were enthusiastic in our seeking the enemy and spoiling for a fight. Taking no time to build temporary bridges, we plunged into the water waist-deep and pushed ahead. In the distance, the gunboats were hammering away at Fort Henry, and as the sound of the booming cannon came to our ears, we wished we were there to attack from the land side. End quote. While Crummer and his comrades were still marching through the muddy wilderness, Shortly before noon, the remaining Confederate defenders of Fort Henry had watched as the Yankee ironclads steamed into view to the north. Advancing in line abreast were the four ironclads, while behind them at some distance came the three timberclads. Captain Jesse Taylor, who was in charge of the skeleton crew, left at the fort to work the cannon, described the scene. Quote, the gunboats formed line of battle abreast under cover of the island. The Essex, the Cincinnati, the Carondelet and the St. Louis formed the van. The Tyler, Conestoga, and Lexington all formed the second or rear line. Seeing the formation of battle, I assigned to each gun a particular vessel to which it was to pay especial compliments, and directed that the guns be kept constantly trained on the approaching boats. Accepting the volunteer services of Captain Hayden of the engineers to assist at the Columbiad, I took personal supervision of the rifle. When they were out of cover of the island, the gunboats opened fire, and as they advanced, they increased the rapidity of their fire, until as they swung into the main channel above the island, they showed one broad and leaping sheet of flame. At this point, the van being a mile distant, the command was given to commence firing from the fort, and here let me say that as pretty and as simultaneous a broadside was delivered as I ever saw flash from the sides of a frigate. The action now became general, and for the next 20 or 30 minutes was, on both sides, as determined, rapid, and accurate as heart could wish, and apparently inclined in favor of the fort. 
the ironclad Essex, disabled by a shot through her boiler, dropped out of line. The fleet seemed to hesitate when a succession of untoward and unavoidable accidents happened in the fort, thereupon the flotilla continued to advance. First, the rifle gun from which I had just been called burst, not only with destructive effect to those working it, but with disabling effect on those in its immediate vicinity. Going to the Columbiad as the only really effective gun left, I met General Tillman and for the first time knew that he had returned to the fort. I suppose that he was with the retreating army, end quote. As Taylor said, as the battle between the ironclads and the fort raged, a shot struck the Essex just above the left forward gun port, then penetrated through the boat to the middle boiler. The boiler ruptured and released a torrent of searing hot water and steam, which swept the forward half of the vessel. Those near the portholes, including Captain Porter, leaped out, but those who couldn't escape died in horrible agony. The ironclad's second master, James Lanning, described the incident. Quote, A shot from the enemy pierced the casement, then through the middle boiler, and opening a chasm for the escape of the scalding steam and water. The scene which followed is almost indescribable. I was met by Fourth Master Walker, followed by a crowd of men rushing aft. I at once ran to the stern of the vessel, and looking out of the stern port, saw a number of our brave fellows struggling in the water. The steam and hot water in the forward gun deck had driven all who were able to get out of the ports overboard, except a few who were fortunate enough to cling to the casement outside. I ordered Mr. Walker to man the boats and pick them up. Captain Porter, who was badly scalded, being assisted through the port from outside the casement by the surgeon, Dr. Thomas Rice, and one of the men. Upon speaking to him, he told me he was badly hurt, and that I must hunt for Mr. Riley, the first master, and if he was disabled, I was to take command of the vessel. Mr. Riley was unharmed, and already in the discharge of his duties as Captain Porter's successor. In a very few minutes after the explosion, our gallant ship was drifting slowly away from the scene of the action, her commander badly wounded, a number of her officers and crew dead at their post, while many others were writhing in their last agony. End quote. From that one well-placed rebel shot, the Essex suffered seven of its crew killed, twenty wounded, and five missing. As the crippled Essex drifted downstream away from the fight, the other Union ironclads continued to advance ever closer to Fort Henry. As they pounded the fort, the other ironclads took hits, but fared better than the unlucky Essex. The Cincinnati was hit 31 times and had two of her guns disabled, but lost only one man killed and nine wounded. The St. Louis received seven hits and the Carondelet six, but neither boat suffered any casualties. The fort appeared to hold the advantage during the first half hour or so of the battle, but then after the Essex was disabled, a series of disasters struck the defenders in rapid succession. At about half-past noon, one of the rebels' most effective pieces, the 24-pounder rifled gun, exploded, killing a sergeant and wounding every other man at the position. A shell from the Carondelet exploded at the mouth of one of the 32-pounders, disabling the gun and killing or wounding every man of its crew. A premature explosion at a 42-pounder killed three men and wounded others. A broken priming wire in the gun vent accidentally spiked the 10-inch Columbiad, rendering it useless. By the time the ironclads had closed to just 600 yards, relentlessly blasting the fort from close range, 
The battered defenders had only four old 32-pounder smoothbores that were still in action, and despite Tillman's efforts to personally inspire his men, the Confederate fire noticeably slackened. Inside Fort Henry, the remaining gun crews were losing heart. All was chaos. Dead and dying men lay about the disabled or dismounted cannon in calf-deep water as the rising waters of the Tennessee poured through the lowest gun embrasures. Dense wreaths of smoke spilled from the many log cabins and tents that had been set afire by the gunboat shells. Just before 2 p.m., Tillman took up a white flag and waved it from the parapet, but the dense smoke billowing about apparently obscured his signal of surrender because the fire from the Federal gunboats did not cease. Tillman then ordered Captain Taylor to haul down the fort's flag. Taylor described what happened after he received that order from Tillman. Quote, The flag mast, which had been the center of fire, had been struck many times. The top mast hung so far out of the perpendicular that it seemed likely to fall at any moment. The flag halyards had been cut by shot, but had become foul at the cross trees. I beckoned, for it was useless to call amid the din, to orderly Sergeant Jones to come to my assistance, and we ran across to the flagstaff and up the lower rigging to the cross trees, and by our united efforts succeeded in clearing the halyards and lowering the flag. The view from that elevated position at the time was grand, exciting, and striking. At our feet, the fort, with her few remaining guns, was sullenly hurling her harmless shot against the sides of the gunboats, which, now apparently within 200 yards of the fort, were, in perfect security, and with the coolness and precision of target practice, sweeping the entire fort. To the north and west, on both sides of the river, were the hosts of bluecoats, anxious and interested spectators, while to the east the feeble forces of the Confederacy could be seen making their way to Fort Donelson. On the morning of the attack, we were sure that the February rise of the Tennessee had come. When the action began, the lower part of the fort was already flooded, and when the colors were hauled down, the water was waist-deep there, and when the cutter came with the officers to receive the formal surrender, she pulled into the sally port. Between the fort and the position which had been occupied by the infantry support was a sheet of water a quarter of a mile wide and running like a mill race. End quote. As Taylor said, after the flag came down, the cutter carrying the Yankee naval officers was rowed right into the flooded fort. Tillman then went out to the Cincinnati and formally surrendered Fort Henry to foot. Tillman said he was glad to surrender to so gallant an officer, to which Foote rather ungallantly replied, quote, You do perfectly right, sir, in surrendering, but you should have blown my gunboats out of the water before I would have surrendered to you. End quote. Fort Henry had been under construction for eight months, but it held out against Foote's gunboats for less than two hours. Twelve Confederate officers, including Tillman, and 66 enlisted men in the fort surrendered, and 16 men on a hospital ship moored nearby were captured. It's difficult to pin down the number of casualties suffered by the defenders, but at least five men were killed, 11 wounded, and five missing. It seems that Tillman didn't plan on surrendering himself at Fort Henry. Rather, it appears to have been an emotional decision made in the heat of battle, but since he was in charge of both Henry and Donelson, and still had a duty to perform in defending Fort Donelson, 
one has to question Tillman's judgment in choosing not to withdraw to that place along with the bulk of his command. Over on the west bank of the Tennessee, Smith's Federals completed an uneventful, or at least uncontested, march to Fort Hyman. As his column had approached the little fort, a scout had rode up and reported that Hyman was abandoned. When Smith asked the man how he knew this, the scout said he knew it because he had already been inside the empty works. At that, Smith ordered his lead regiment to move forward quickly and occupy the fort. Meanwhile, the first of McClernand's troops, the 18th Illinois, finally finished their muddy march and entered Fort Henry at 3.30 in the afternoon. McClernand sent his cavalry off to find the retreating Confederates, and the Yankee horsemen came upon the rear of the rebel column about three miles east of Fort Henry. To meet the threat, the 15th Arkansas and two companies of the 26th Alabama about-faced and formed into line. After an exchange of fire, the Federal cavalry continued their pursuit, but at a discreet distance, but still managed to capture six cannon and several dozen stragglers. The column of bone-tired Southern infantry reached Fort Donelson at two in the morning. Ulysses S. Grant had his victory, even if the fight at the fort had been an all-Navy show, and Foote and his sailors could rightly claim the honors for capturing the prize. But Grant wasn't content with what the joint expedition had accomplished so far. No, he wanted to keep after the rebels and hit them again. And so, on the day that Fort Henry fell, Grant sent the following message to Halleck, dated February 6th. Quote, Fort Henry is ours. The gunboats silenced the batteries before the investment was completed. I think the garrison must have commenced the retreat last night. Our cavalry followed. I shall take and destroy Fort Donelson on the 8th and return to Fort Henry. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Where the South Lost the War, an analysis of the Fort Henry Fort Donelson campaign by Kendall D. Gott. The incomparable Ed Bars had this to say about where the South lost the war. Quote, Gott blends his experiences as a combat veteran with those of a military historian to provide a gripping narration of day-to-day operations. Particularly relevant are his penetrating analyses of the leaders, their command decisions, and their strengths and weaknesses. These elements combine to give the readers a masterful account of the campaign. End quote. You can find God's book and all of our other book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And we also put up portraits, maps, and other stuff on the website, so you can check those out too. As we close, we want to give a special shout out to Jonathan P. for being the 700th person to like the podcast on Facebook. Jonathan is one of our many listeners over in the UK. Uh, He's an Englishman in the still united UK, and he also sent us a nice message, though. uh, So thanks, John. And then we also want to say thank you to Greg G. from Australia for his donation. Thanks, Greg. And last but not least, thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of the Civil War 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we look at Grant's move against Fort Donelson. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.